Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Welcome, everyone, to our 25th episode. Absolutely, our one-year anniversary episode. Of what do you know about that? We've been on the air for a year, Eric, a year. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to imagine. It is, and we've got a very special episode in store, so thanks for tuning in today, everyone. What's going on this day in science? Well, since you've asked, this day in science, October 13th, Thursday, in 2015, Sweden moves towards cashless economy. I'm not really sure how this qualifies as science, but let's read on. A report from the Royal Institute of Technology said Sweden may be the world's first nation to transition into a cashless society in which cash is altogether replaced by digital transactions. The study, which analyzed a number of economic, commercial, and societal factors, indicated that Sweden's efforts to reduce organized crime and wholehearted embrace of industrial technology are primarily to thank for the transition toward cashless commerce. Specifically, experts say only 80 billion Swedish crowns are physically in circulation, a near 20% decrease from only six years prior, and that 40 to 60% of that number is likely stored in lockboxes and homes. Many tech analysts believe the coming decade will see many nations heading toward a cashless society. I don't know about that. Yeah. Maybe. Just depends. Depends on what country you live in. I don't know about that. Well, I think we should ask our very special guest who's with us for this one-year anniversary episode, Jim Broyles. Welcome, Jim. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Mary Angela. Some of you may have recognized Jim's voice as he does the intro, outro, and the segue in the middle of our show. Yes, it's true. Well, thanks for being with us, Jim. Uh, You just heard Eric talk about what happened this day in science. What do you think about going completely cashless, having no physical cash? I don't know. I mean, I can I can see the the sense behind it, but on the other hand, it feels a little untethered to the world without ever seeing any you know three dimensional representation of the money I have. Sure. Granted, that almost that happens so little these days with for me. How often do you all carry cash? It's true. I mean, I'm often caught without cash when there are situations where I can only like Mr. Softy. He only takes cash. Uh. I can't tell you how many times I did not get Mr. Softy this summer because I did not have any cash on me. It depends on what you're paying for. You know, if you're in the gig economy, I think cash is king only because cash is not traceable like digital currency, which nowadays you have to submit if you're filing your taxes, all of your digital accounts if you're making money through those avenues, right? Yeah. So... Well, the other thing is, I mean, wasn't there a massive like coin shortage? Like every place was being like, you have to pay in with card or you know exact change because there's a coin shortage. So is that because most currencies are going digital because we're using we're not using cash money anymore as much? Is that- no, I. Um, when did that happen? During that- the pandemic. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, I think because there was just like a, an uptake in usage or something. I don't know. But I don't think that was tied to... I think people were hoarding cash because they were like, eh, Maybe. pandemic, the world's coming to an end. Hoarding me, all their pennies and Let me take all the dimes. cash out of the bank. I don't know. I, I agree that I don't think we'll ever live in a truly cashless economy. I do think there will always be Of course there will hard be. Hard currency. I mean, you might see more predominantly transactions occurring digitally, but yeah. cash will always we'll exist. See. So what's going on in the neighborhood, Mary Angela? Well, we have a lot of things going on in the neighborhood, and I'm so excited that Jim also lives in the neighborhood, so you can also weigh in on the things I'm going to talk about. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is actually pretty local to us. You may have read or heard um, about you know checks being stolen out of mailboxes, um, mailboxes being broken into and mail basically disappearing, and people's like Pico checks are being basically washed and rewritten and then cashed toward the criminal that, you know, stole them. Does that ring any bells? Anybody? I had not heard about that. Oh, yeah, no. You just mentioned it. So it's a it's a whole, it's a thing that's been happening for a while. It's not anything new, particularly um, in Germantown and Mount Airy and a couple mailboxes in Chestnut Hill, quite honestly. Um, but this particular post that was just posted today in the uh, Living in Germantown Altogether group on Facebook talks about the... Um, mailbox at the corner of McCallum and Walnut Lane just being gaping open. It's just like someone had pried into it, left it open, and it's like it's just there. The basket is still in it, but there definitely has, you know, most likely been some pilfering to it. And so then the person says, you know, what do I what do I do? I call the police and they're like, okay, it doesn't seem like the right thing to do. And what I thought was really great was someone thought to call the um, postal inspection hotline, and basically they said that's the people you should call, right? Something is wrong with a you know post office box or mailbox. You need to call them because they're the ones kind of responsible for maintaining the mailboxes and taking mm. care of them. So um, if you see a mailbox that has been clearly tampered with or if you see something that seems suspicious involving a mailbox, <laughs> you can call 877 976 Two four five five and report it. Tell them where this mailbox is, and they will send someone out to take a look at it and see like what's going on um, involving it. It really stinks that we have to do that. But one of I don't know if you've noticed that you can't open a mailbox fully anymore. You can't. Yeah, you can't yeah. open it enough just to slide in an envelope. Yeah, because correct. People are probably sticking their arms inside. Yes, there. and that's something that has happened within the last like decade because mailboxes that I used to frequent all the time, like the one at the end of Sedgwick, used to open all the way. I used to mail up really like big handfuls of things in there now, and now it only opens a sliver. So you know, <laughs> it's sad that we have to do that. But I know that I've been missing mail. Like I'm on the mailing list for my at my job, or I send the newsletter. I send the newsletter to myself to see if I get it. I have not gotten my fall newsletter yet, hmm. and it was mailed out. So who knows what ether that slipped well, you into? You don't think people are stealing your newsletter? I think it might no. be just getting lost in circulation. Some of that, but also when people steal things out of the mailbox, they take lots of other things and that they don't like, want. Uh, they right. no check. They right. Just I'm toss just going to trash it. You trash it. Exactly. It's really, it's kind of unfortunate. So that's one thing. The other thing I want to talk about is what's going on at the art museum. Do either of you know what's going on at the art museum? At the art museum? No. No. 
No, I do not. Okay. Well, uh, let me tell you what's going on at the Tell Art me. Museum if I can get rid of this stupid ad that's in the way. So the uh, workers at the Art Museum are on strike, and they have been for a hot minute. Um, I think they're going on a week now, maybe a little more by the time um, this makes the air. Mm. But they are indeed on strike at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And they've taken their fight all the way to the city council because there's a lot of things happening. They unionized a couple years ago. And when they did that, they made some demands and they were promised that these things were going to happen. And instead, those people started getting treated really badly for daring to unionize, (laughs) for daring to want to make their work environment a better work environment. And things over the last two years have not gotten better. They've, in fact, gotten worse. And now they're like, okay, we're done. We're done waiting for you to do the things you promised you were going to do. We're done. We're going to strike. We're going to walk out unless you do these things. So these are the five things that they want. They want raises, and they want them made retroactive to July 1st, which is when they basically started these negotiations that have gone nowhere. Uh, They want back pay. In an effort to make up for years of low pay, the union wants the museum to recognize longevity of service. With wow, payments that might be of, a tall ask. Mm-hmm, with, right, with service payments of like $500 for every five years of employment. A recognition of longevity, this longevity payment would be added to the base pay every five years. So it means like if you've been there for a long time, you should be recognized for like you were, you've been here, you've, you've hung on. Guaranteed minimums, an increased pay for hourly workers to a minimum of sixteen seventy-five an hour. Right now they're making, I think it's 14 Oh, wow. Just below minimum wage. Yeah. Overall increase of salary levels, an increase in base pay museum-wide. They want less expensive health care for employees. So right now the employees of the Philadelphia Museum of Art have really expensive ben- uh, health care benefits that have a very high deductible, which leaves the employees on the hook for payments even after the deductible is met. So, I mean, you're in a low-paying arts world job, and then you're paying through the nose for your health insurance. That like, sounds like most of America right there. Right, yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty hard. So those are the five things that they really want. And the reason why they're going to city hall and getting councilmen and everything involved is because, you know, the city puts money into the museum of art, right? And they get a lot of funding from the city and they get a lot of funding from different grants and organizations. And it's a really big imbalance because the executives who are there, right? Museum executives, they're making basically somewhere between 200,000 to $700,000 a year. $700,000. Yep. Yeah. Really? Yep. <laughs> to because, run a museum? Because what? because all those salaries are public public knowledge, right? You can't be in a nonprofit and not publicly announce what your salaries are. And the the Philadelphia Orchestra ran up against this exact same thing when they found out that their, you know, executive director was making upwards of $500,000 a year That's... while struggling musicians can't afford an apartment in downtown Philadelphia. Well, then the orchestra had to make yeah, some changes. that just seems a little outrageous. Like, I know other industries, and, you know, even the industry I operate in that pays pretty well, no one making that much money. Yeah. I mean, that's what it says. I mean, they have to announce their salaries, so, like, they're not making it up. <laughs> And that's why they're, you know, going to city council and they're being like, this is shameful. This is shameful that you're putting your money 
into this organization and they're taking it for themselves and not actually doing with it what, what they need to do and giving people a livable wage. So they are on strike. They are basically sitting out front of the museum with their signs. They are standing outside. They are not going to work. Um, we'll see what happens because most of the money that it gets from the city is in the in the form of like freebies or like exemptions from certain things that the, the city would charge other mm. organizations. Okay. And so they're like, start charging them. Like if, if they're not going to give us a, a livable wage, if they're not going to meet us in the middle, then start making them pay. Some of that money has to come from the money that they're getting that's going to these exorbitant salaries of a few people when there's so many people that work for the museum. So, yeah, thoughts about that. Mm. I support those who've gone on strike. I don't think those are unrealistic demands to have. Yeah, I don't either, especially in, in light of how much people are making at the top. It's an arts community. I get it. And the museum is is trying. They've made some offers, but it's kind of not quite enough. They're like, well, what do you think about this? Or would you consider I this? Mean, that's and they're like, mm. Negotiations. Right. I mean, but they're standing pretty firm. Well, when the era, in, a, in an era where unions have all but started to dwindle, there's definitely been some resurgence. And I appreciate the value of unionized workers it's important mm -hmm. mm. yeah no for sure so i had no idea all that was going on i literally just found that out recently so mm. i found it interesting and i thought we'd talk about it well something closer to home which you've commented on kind of switching subjects a little bit but the uh the the slowdown signs all throughout the neighborhood mount airy yep. on the edge of germantown i'm sure people have started to notice those have you seen those jim i have indeed yep yeah, they're I, I I mean they're everywhere. So clearly somebody dropped some money into it. But you know it says enjoy Mount Airy, slow down. Welcome to Mount Airy, slow down. <laughs> um, which and they're every so many feet. So they are they're really around. Do you think it's going to make a difference? No. What I, I was going to say is <laughs> yeah, I got no, quick Jim is, is to be, jump in there because I I, I don't because I was going to say the signs may be new, but the problem is not right. You know, the entire time I've lived here, people have dried, driven unsafe speeds around the neighborhood, especially down Germantown Avenue. But that's not where they're posted, you know, really. No, but they're posted in all the streets that feed into Germantown Avenue. They're all surrounding. My beef is that the, that the signs have made it past Mount Airy into Germantown. And I feel like that's people who don't understand that this is Germantown. I mean, the problem exists in Germantown, too, for sure, which is why I'm like, whoever made those signs for Mount Airy, I would love for them to make some signs that says, welcome to Germantown, slow down, enjoy Germantown, slow or down. Just, just slow down. Just just have it maybe in bigger. Take up yeah. less of the sign advertising who's supporting it and just say, slow down. Slow down. Yeah. Yeah, I have just replace all the stop signs with slow down. <laughs> I have half a mind to to walk around with a sharpie and scratch out Mount Airy and write Germantown in the places where it's placed across the Mount Airy Germantown line, where it is in fact in Germantown, and that would be that would be great. You should do that. I, yeah. <laughs> you should make it look like a child wrote it. Right. <laughs> you can get exactly. that crayon effect. Welcome to Germantown. Slow down. Well, well I was talking with our neighbor. We're actually considering um, get, getting out the white spray paint and, and cutting some lines on the side 
of the uh, the walk just so people could actually park properly. It won't happen. Yeah. They, I mean, it's just a suggestion. That's all you can do. I mean, yes, but it won't. It still won't happen. It won't change anything. Anyway, so that's what's going on in the neighborhood. Gotcha. Well, thank you for sharing. Yes. So this week, uh, in honor of our one-year anniversary, we thought we would do something a little bit different. Um, instead of having a musician from the neighborhood, we're having someone in the neighborhood talk about musicians. <laughs> so that is why we have invited Jim on the show Not today. just because of his amazing voice, but because of his knowledge of a particular musical group that we'll be highlighting for yes, today's show. Exactly. So Jim, tell us what you're here to talk about. Uh, well... I was going to talk about the Beatles. Awesome. My favorite band. Your favorite the Beatles. Band. So tell us, why Why are they your favorite band? Give us a little backstory. When When did you first... When did you discover the Beatles? Um, well, that's an interesting one because I have no memory of that. It's, there's not a time that I can remember when I didn't know the Beatles. And the Whoa. reason for that is because, um, you know, I first heard them when I was a, a baby. My brother who was three years old at the time, had a habit of going through my parents' records, and if he liked the cover, he would ask it for it to be played. And that was one that he requested, and it quickly became the favorite. So I must have heard it as a baby, and then, yeah, I don't have any mem- memories of not knowing the Beatles. Okay. Wow. But I, I will follow on that and say, like, you know, growing up, my brother and I both really liked the Beatles. We loved them, but we we weren't obsessed about it. Whereas when I was 12, summer when I was 12, my my brother came and got me one day and uh, said, hey, come on to the living room. Uh, the complete Beatles documentary is on PBS. And that was the, the complete Beatles is one of the was really the first serious and I would say quality documentary on the Beatles made it's kind of obsolete now and the production value looks really bad these you know but and the because the Beatles told, told their own uh story in their anthology documentary which is multi-part covered the whole whereas this is just a two-hour film but in it I learned their story for the first time that's a part of the appeal they have this really wonderful origins story. And maybe it's just because they're such fascinating people. Their press agent and friend Derek Taylor called it the the greatest romance of the 20th century. Now that sounds a little pretentious and exaggerated. So you're talking about but... between McCartney and Lennon. No. <laughs> Romantic in the sense of, uh, you know, I, you know what I mean. Anyway. Maybe you don't know what I, I don't. Mean. Please explain. Okay, uh, well, you know, I don't know. I, maybe I've gotten it wrong. Um, but anyway, um, they have a great story, and watching the documentary, just and I heard all this music I hadn't heard before, because growing up, we'd only heard certain records. We, had, we didn't have a complete collection of them. Um, didn't get that for several years later. Yeah, I just got, uh, you know, hooked on the music. And, and for me, they've aged better than any other music that I am, of which I'm aware, you know, pop, pop music or what you'd call rock and roll. Oh yeah, it stands the test of time yeah, for sure. I mean, so does many, so do many others, but I mean, I think them, they above most seem kind of, I would say either timeless or they're, 
they they continue to sound modern despite i don't know being 50 yeah, decades and, old sure. and so many hits so many songs that have just become etched into the the consciousness of of so many people yeah for sure um so i don't know their origin story can you give us an abridged like what it what is it yeah i mean they met when they were teenagers um and actually the first two of them to to be friends were actually paul mccartney and george harrison uh but they didn't form the band what happened was john lennon formed a a skiffle group because skiffle of course was the you know, the English equivalent of American folk music, mm-hmm. traditional American folk music. In fact, they, a lot of Skiffle was just them doing, you know, Lead Belly songs. And, um, right, but that the, was during the era when a lot of young British folks were heavily influenced by Southern African-American artists. Exactly, yeah. Yes, and, uh, you know, those who didn't, it revolved around a lot of acoustic guitars, but beyond that, a lot of the other instruments were like homemade, cobbled together things. Like the, anyway. Um, but John Lennon formed a skiffle group with his, you know, sort of high school friends called the Quarrymen because he went to Quarry Bank. High, they went to Quarry Bank High School in Liverpool. Uh. and then one of his friends um, was a mutual friend of Paul McCartney. Uh, you know, he lived. He lived in John's like neighborhood, I think, but was went to a different school. He went to the more uh, prestigious Liverpool Institute, uh, which is also where Paul McCartney and George Harrison went. They, you know, they, and uh, anyway, his friend, the mutual friend Ivan Vaughn, brought, brought Paul McCartney to see John Lennon's skiffle group play at a village fete, a church village fate which is basically a church fundraiser mm-hmm. and uh, he watched them and then after the show they met and then paul performed some songs for them and john was really impressed and then asked him to join the band they became best friends or very you know very close friends and then paul brings george into the band um and then eventually George brings Ringo into the band. Now they all pretty, you know, pretty much agreed unanimously, you know, whoever was along the way, but um that was kind of and not only that was also the hierarchy in terms of authority within the band like John, Paul, John Paul. George, yeah. Ringo. Now Ringo though wasn't originally the drummer, that was my understanding. There's, there's. I don't know if this is true or not. You can correct me, but I had heard that there was a gentleman who, his name eludes me because no one remembers this guy. He was the drummer, that original drummer prior to Ringo. And the story was that I heard this guy looked too good to be the drummer and the concern was it would draw too much attention away from John and Ringo. I mean, I'm sorry, John, John and um, Paul. Paul. Okay, yes, there was. Like, I got ahead of myself because I made it sound like, you know, they joined all one after another. Like, right. after George joins, you like, know, they close the door behind him and are a trio for a long time. And they're not even really 
gigging that much. They're still very much beginners. In the mother's basement. Yeah. Um, But then eventually, you're right. Yes, they did get, they did have a, famously have a drummer who was not Ringo. And his name was Pete Best. Now, the the thing, probably one of the most crucial things in their story to, to help them become who they were was they they find they got hired a manager guy named alan williams in liverpool and he got managed to get them a job in germany in hamburg germany the, in a you know area called the the reaper reaperbahn where you know there was a lot of uh it was well there was there was a red light district there were a lot of like strip clubs there was prostitution and then there were a lot of bars that nice. sailors hung out in <laughs> Sure. They got a job playing at one of those clubs. Yeah, start somewhere. And another member did join for a while, and that was one of John Lennon's best friends from art college, where he, at this point, he's gone up to art college, uh, which he did not complete. Anyway, his friend Stuart Sutcliffe, who was a, a very good painter, came in as the bass player. The three of them are all playing guitars, and vocalist and although George didn't sing much then anyway Stuart Sutcliffe playing bass but he's a basically learning the bass anyway they needed a drummer to go to Germany so they hired the first guy they could find Pete Best now some of what you said was kind of half true yeah he was considered very good looking by the, the you know the 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 fans the audience but that had nothing to do with why they fired him or why they replaced him. Um, That's urban legend. Yeah, basically. Mm. So I like to stoke the flames a little. Yeah, no, I mean, and that was, you know, that's been like a rumor that people have, some have suggested yeah. over the over time. But the real reason is they, they, he they sacked him because he wasn't <laughs> as, he wasn't very good. And Ringo was certainly better. Like, um, at that point... Because they had met Ringo in Germany, even though they're all live from Liverpool, and they met he, his band Roy, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes were also playing in Hamburg. Uh. And when Pete had to miss gigs, Ringo sat in, and that's when they noticed that it really gelled, and they started to think maybe okay, maybe we should get him instead. But they and is that when they all got matching haircuts? <laughs> um, around that time, yeah. Well, you know, that's that's another thing is like I think George was maybe the first to get the haircut in Germany and then later John and Paul took it on at the same time. Now, wasn't John Lennon though like granted those guys just about like every other young British musician during that era being influenced by southern american blues music? Lennon was also influenced by Presley, like a lot of folks were too. Oh yes, they all—they were all huge Elvis fans. I mean, they really kind of ran the gamut of Elvis, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, yeah. Buddy Holly, Carl Perkins, the Everly Brothers, Ray Charles, Fats Domino. Those were all the all the people you artists you would think of. Yeah, from the fifties rock and roll scene. Um, to finish what I the thought about Ringo and Pete Best, is that it's interesting you should mention the haircut. Because another reason why he was replaced was because he never really fit with the three of them, personality-wise. They were all very quick-witted. They were all kind of on the same tight wavelength in terms of 
their sense of humor. And um, he wasn't a stupid guy. He just wasn't on that wavelength. (laughs) And he tended to be very much a loner. He didn't go out with them to hang out after the gigs, whereas that was one thing about the Beatles is that in terms of the the romantic aspect, not like that type of romance. Brotherhood. Yes. They were all... I have to say, like, one of the things I li- I love about them is that they were genuinely such close friends, all four of them. And when you watched them in, like, a press conference or in a, a Hard Day's Night, which is fictional, but it's based, it's meant to be very m- like their reality at the time, is that you get the sense that they would all four be hanging out with each other whether they were working or not. Very often you have bands that don't even like each other like personal dynamics of the early rolling stones kind of toxic between brian jones and mick and keith and just you have all these other bands where members are fighting one another i personally find the idea of a you know the biggest band in the world also being like all best friends kind of rather reassuring i don't know why but well it's like ideal and it's hard to come across that's for sure yeah but anyway Regarding, you know, him not, Pete Best not fitting in with the three of them, he didn't get the haircut. He kept the slick back 50s rock and roller haircut, and that didn't really play into it. It was just more the fact that he, he wasn't really one of them, whereas Ringo was. And I have to tell you, like, for, for years I just read about it or heard about it, and then in the mid-90s there was a... The anthology film I ref- documentary series I referred to earlier was accompanied by, you know, three double CD sets and a book, an oral history book where they told their s- story in that form. And the uh, anthology one was the first Beatle, official Beatles album to have recordings with Pete Best on them. And when oh, you wow. listen to them, it's readily apparent why he was let go. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yes, he's just not anywhere near as good as Ringo. He's erratic and is, is uninteresting. There... That's the thing, is even when he competently keeps time, there's nothing interesting or exciting about his playing. It's very rote. So what's a, what's a song that we could actually tap into that's got Pete Best on it? I'm curious. Um, well, if you want a, one that shows exactly how he was it's the first recorded version of love me do that was done at their very first session at emi recording studios at abbey road then there's one that maybe he sounds a little if you want a good representation maybe the best representation of his playing it's a song from the same session it's which is a cover version of besame mucho i think they wow yeah okay Uh, that old chestnut yeah Hmm. (laughs) Interesting. Well, um, we'll see if we can find it, but I don't know if we can. So that's, I mean, that's a great story. I, like, I, you know, I didn't really know fully how they formed and, and all the the avenues in which all that took. So thanks Well, for I it. wasn't quite done, oh, but I'll, sorry. No, but it was Go a very ahead. long and shambling <laughs> answer. Well, no, I, I, I know, like, between Lennon and McCartney, they had very different backgrounds. McCartney had a pretty strong thread of music within his family. He grew up in a very musical family. He played at a very young age. He had a, a pretty in-depth, immersive experience as a child growing up, whereas Lennon, I mean, 
I wouldn't necessarily say polar opposite, right? But he grew up in a troubled home. Like one of the songs, what's the one that Lennon did? Mother? Yes, Mother. That's the one, right? He talks, it's he's singing about his dad leaving and his mom. Well, yeah, it's... Yeah. Mama, so, don't go, daddy, come home. That's, yeah. That's what the refrain at the outro is. And he... Yeah. And he gets quite emotional. He starts... That was... He was doing primal scream therapy before he recorded that those songs. That was his first solo hey, album. Yeah, anyway. you can feel it's gut-wrenching. Yeah, no, that's to. totally true. Um, I mean, Paul McCartney come, came... You know, his dad was a musician... Not you know, he'd play. He'd had his own band, you know, jazz bands, and there was a piano in the house, and the family were always singing and playing songs. But I mean, in addition to that, like Paul McCartney was the most natural, naturally gifted musician in the group. Not that they weren't all gifted, musically gifted, but he was just—he's the sort of person that can immediately pick up an instrument and start making something with it. You know, but he yep. did have the earliest instruction and encouragement. Yes. You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. So there are a couple Beatle-related things that came out and I'm thinking just within the past few years obviously the documentary that Peter Jackson did yes so and we'll talk about that a little bit there's also what came out and I want to say maybe it was like three or four years ago my timing's off on this but George Martin who is the famed fifth Beatle which I definitely want to talk about him his son ended up remastering a bunch of old recordings. And there was an amazing interview Terry Gross did on Fresh Air talking to him about the actual process of going about uncovering these recordings and then going through and digitally remastering these. Yes, this these last few years have been a really great time to be a Beatles fan because starting in 2017 which was the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, um, they put out the first one of these. And I've heard that uh, Fresh Air interview. It's very good, very interesting. And yes, he remastered it once again and remixed the album. And then that was re-released. And if the thing that's really great for Beatles super fans are the deluxe box sets that come with each one of these reissues. Because mm-hmm. prior to that, the only outtakes had been released on the Beatles anthology CDs I was talking about earlier. But this was more expansive. The whole set is devoted to one album. So, that, so they pr- put pretty much, I think, every available outtake or alternate take on there. Or just, you know, the absolutely most interesting ones. And it's great stuff. They sound great. I mean, some fans argue about over things like, you know, mixes and remixes, stereo versus mono. Oh, boy. You know, but I think they sound great. And as a fan, I always want more. I don't get tired of them. Then the next year, 2018, they did the 50th anniversary wide album deluxe set. 2019, Abbey Road. And then... In 1970 was when Let It Be, their last album, came out. But as you know, COVID mm-hmm. happened. And I think the Peter Jackson 
docuseries was supposed to happen in 2020 mm-hmm. as well. But it all got delayed. And it actually even got delayed past 2021 because all of that stuff hit this year. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. That was 2021. I'm losing my mind. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, no, it was, uh, yeah, at the, in the latter part of 2021, the Let It Be deluxe box set produced by Giles Martin was released at around the same time as the Peter Jackson film dropped on so Disney+. So remind Plus. me, the, the Peter Jackson film, which is all just raw footage that's been cleaned up and edited from basically a studio session, right? Um, or- yeah, well, a, se- uh, a series of studio sessions, yes, that took place over, I guess, a two-week time period. It's really the better part of January 1969. Yes, what they were doing in it is that they had, after the White Album, they had a plan, and I think the plan was conceived of by McCartney, that they would go into the studio, rehearse all their new songs, their new material, and be filmed doing it. And then, rather than, you know, record them in the normal fashion, they would have a big concert at the conclusion of this when they, you know, polished all the songs before a live audience and record an album of new material that was all live. And they, you know, filmed it because I think they were going to make... I think the idea was for it to be... Now I can't believe I blanked on this because it eventually became the movie that came out in 1970 as Let It Be. And that's why, because, you know, they're promoting everything at the same time because the movie wasn't ready until the next year. The album didn't come out to the, till the next year. It's interesting because that era really, I think, is when you started to see the emergence of and I would call them rockumentaries where bands like I know even Hendrix had done this and there was a documentary that came out of him, I think around the time of his passing shortly after. But yeah, that's when you started to see, I think the beginning of those types of documentaries. Yeah. Yeah. It came out as a movie because the original plan was scrapped. I mean, they got into the the studio and immediately it was clear like Ringo was only participating up until a certain date because he was going to make a movie afterwards. George didn't want to do the thing really at all. Ringo was going to make a movie of his own? Uh, no, he was cast as an actor, and yeah, but it was a non-Beatles movie. Was he it made a Frank a Zappa of, film? Uh, no, <laughs> it wasn't 200 Motels. That was years later. <laughs> um, yeah, that that's a whole other separate conversation. Yeah, right? Ringo's movie career. <laughs> not oh, boy. A, not really a... When did the Beatles do Yellow Submarine? The song or the animated movie? The animated movie. Well, they didn't really have anything to do much to do with it, like... You know, the song, of course, was from 66 on their uh, Revolver album, but the I think the film, the animated movie came out in either 68 or 69, I, f- I forget. Hmm. Um, it may have come out at different times in the UK and the US. I don't, I'm not sure. So Just curious. Sorry to do Yeah, no, no, that's fine. I mean, I like Yellow Submarine, but yeah, they didn't really get involved with that. They didn't do their own voices. There are oh, some rather bad sure. versions of their uh, voices in the movie, but it's they sound comical, so, you know. they All they filmed was a bit at the end, live action of them talking to the, the mm. camera um, in a short little bit. And, of course, they provided the 
the music, except for the score, which was by fifth Beatle, George Martin. So yeah, um, let's talk about George Martin a little bit. What do you know about George Martin, Mary I Angela? don't know. I didn't know there was a fifth Beatle. So well, he's not officially... Technically, <laughs> he's not, but... There's, you know, a bit Referred like, to as the fifth Beatle. But why? So why is he referred to as the fifth Beatle? Um, well... Just a thing, a quick sidebar on the Fifth Beetle thing. There's a load of people who could be called the Fifth Beetle, um, including the literal Fifth Beetle that was a member of Stuart Sutcliffe. He tragically died, never closed that one, but he was, he was, a lot of people consider him the Fifth Beetle because he actually played with them on some of the records for a start. He helped them arrange the songs. He was mm-hmm. like the primary producer. Yeah, he, I mean, he was the producer. At the time, it was called A&R Man, arts, Artist and Repertoire, but he, it, it was what we would call a producer now. Yeah, so he contributed to a lot of the creative calls to, say, like, incorporate some of the more finer elements that go into sculpting some of the the elements that go into the songs like some of the transitions like at the end of love is all you need there's that brass section that comes in right yes i think that was sort of the birth child of george martin you know he contributed some of those creative elements to the song like the beatles wrote the music but then he would add the sprinkles on top Hmm. Yeah, and he'd added the intro to that song too, the orchestral intro. I mean, in the earliest songs, he would he would help shape them by kind of doing like a head arrangement. He didn't actually write one out, but then later, whenever their songs needed scoring, yeah, he could score. He would write. He would compose the the arrangement for the classically trained musicians, the classical musicians, and um, yep. You know, he was a very, very inventive and creative producer. Like when John Lennon wanted the song on Sgt. Pepper called Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, which he took the lyrics. It's basically a song advertising a circus. And he wanted this circus-like atmosphere. And so George Martin went to, in addition to playing, I think, some organ himself, also layered in these clips from the EMI tape library of like pipe organs but he wanted it to sound kind of crazy, so he cut them into smaller sections, threw them up in the air, and then picked them up randomly, taped them back together in that order, so it would sound kind of crazy. But <laughs> he would do things like that. It, he and his engineers, some of the engineers contributed to it as well, but you know, get some very innovative sounds like backwards guitar, or it just had to do with recording techniques as well. So... One of my favorite George Martin stories, and this, I know you can YouTube it because I did, and came up with the full story of this, which is one of those recording magic mysteries that you only hear about afterwards, but it's specifically for Strawberry Fields. And you stop me, Jim, if you know where I'm going with this, but when the song was recorded, if I recall correctly... Oh, yes, I know what you're there was a couple different feels that the band recorded it in. So one was at a little faster tempo in a different key. One was at a slower tempo in a different key. So they couldn't really fall in line together because the band liked different aspects of each different version. So what George Martin did was he took essentially took one version where the portion of it, like I guess the first half which the band really loved, he had actually taped it or stitched it together with another version that was in a different key 
and he changed the tempo. And by changing the tempo, it drops the pitch. It shifts the pitch of the the song when you adjust the audio, the, how fast you're playing it. And so they basically stitch two different versions of the song together. And they, by changing the speed, I guess, of the reels or how they recorded it, were able to blend them. So if you actually measured with like um, a tuner through the song, you'll hear it's like what they call sense. You're a few cents off of like being right on the pitch. One's a little bit lower, just off like a few cents to the right. And then when you get to the other half of the song, it's a few cents to the left. But they all are just close enough that the pitch lines up that you wouldn't even notice it. And they played it for John Lennon, anxiously awaiting to see if he could spot where it was at. And he he had no idea. And they're like, great. Yeah, well, once you hear the story, you can tell exactly where the transition is. Oh, really? Yeah, because, well, particularly if you've heard, like, the full take of that first part. Ah, You know, or whatever. But it's like, hey, I know where it is. And I can't remember the time... I think it might be around a minute, a minute into the song or a minute and a half. I've, it's one of those. But yeah, I, I, that's that story is famous. John in particular, they did it one way. He liked it, but then he decided he wasn't happy with it. So they did it again in this faster tempo with brass and, you know, all these orchestral instruments. And he's like, you know what? I like them both. Put them, you see exactly what you said. Make, it, yeah. make them make work. It work. So figure it out. And walked away. Right. And he miraculously, George Martin did. Well, I don't want to change gears too much, but I do want to change gears before we run out of time because Jim has some tunes that he has selected for us to play. So I want to make sure. Yes, and we've got to play something else because we can't have the only thing representation being a Pete Best recording. Right. No, exactly. So um, you have picked some songs that are, I don't know, your favorites or the ones you would you would want to share with us. So let's talk about one of them. What's what's the first one you think we should take a listen to? The first one I had picked isn't necessarily interesting to talk about, but it's a cool one to listen to. I picked songs that you don't hear on the radio. Now granted with Sirius XM radio, you would might you probably will hear these songs, but on conventional FM radio, you'd never hear these songs on the classic mm-hmm. rock stations. And that the first one was Everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey, but which is off their 1968 album called The Beatles, but known popularly as the White Album. The White Album. All right. Well, and it's a John Lennon song. Great guitars. Okay, let's take a listen. Yeah, let's do it. Everybody's got 
All right, that's a good tune. And I have heard that song before, but I can't tell you where I heard it, so I can't say for sure if it was like on the radio or if it was just something. Uh, I mean, I grew up, my stepmother was a huge Beatles fan, so I've heard pretty much every Beatles song at some point in my life. Yeah, no, familiar with the tune. I didn't realize that was the title of it. <laughs> but you mentioned something about a, a reference in the song to the period of time where they were heavy into... It was was it? It's not Buddhist. It's not Buddhism. It's Hinduism or uh, no transcendental meditation. Okay, specifically just the practice of transcend uh, TM transcendental meditation. But they had a yogi. Yes, well, he was a guru. Okay, um, so he. It's not necessarily. It's not tied to any particular religion. George did become very into Hinduism. Yeah. Uh, but he also was fascinated by Buddhism. I think so was John Lennon. I mean, they were all... In- but And you hear a lot, not just in that song, but a <laughs> lot of lyrical content and a whole plethora of other tunes. Yes. I mean, they in 1968, March of 1968, they went to Rishikesh, India to study, to practice and study tra- transcendental meditation with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi the leader of the TM movement, their guru. That's kind of when they started giving up all the drugs, right? Yeah, that didn't last that long. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, But they wrote a ton of songs while they were there, and a lot of the things he was, you know, they weren't just meditating. He was talking, giving lectures and talking to them on about a lot of things, and a lot of what he said found its way into some of those songs. Well, And, like, even tunes on Abbey Road, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there were, I mean, there were so many songs written in that period that, you know, they didn't all make it onto the White Album. And the interesting thing about the Get Back series is that a lot of, you see and hear a lot of songs that wind up as solo Beatles songs. So, uh, what other song you got? We'll do um, For No One. Tell us about it. <clears throat> it's a song that was that Paul McCartney wrote. It's an interesting thing about you know very often those Lennon McCartney songs were written separately. They have their both name with their names on it. Though they did collaborate a lot in the early days. But he wrote that in 1966. It was on their album Revolver about one speculates that it was about his relationship with the British actress Jane Asher uh, at the time that because it was famously a kind of fractious relationship ultimately didn't work out he married linda mm-hmm. um but it's a one of their kind of songs with a it's a piano based song with a with a like i think is it's a french horn george martin uh, wrote the arrangement which included the part for the uh french horn it's just very economical lyrically and musically but just really a beautiful little piece in a completely different direction from what we just heard all right well let's take a listen your day breaks, your mind aches You find that all her words of kindness linger on When she no longer needs you She wakes up, she makes up She takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry She no longer needs you And in her eyes you see nothing No sign of love Tears cried for no one A love that should have lasted years You want her, you need her And yet you don't believe 
She says her love is dead You think she needs you Stay home, she goes out. She says that long ago she knew someone, but now he's gone, she doesn't need him. Your day breaks, your mind aches. There will be times when all the things she said will fill your head. You won't forget her, and in her eyes you see nothing. No sign of love beyond the tears. That song sounds familiar, but I can't place it. But it might just sound stylistically familiar to me. Stylistically, it almost rings like with Maxwell's Silver Hammer. It has a very classical, very yeah. classical sound to it. So I'm like, I don't know if I heard it once like as a kid or it just sounds like I said Baroque. stylistically familiar. But I like it. It's a good song. That's good. Glad to hear it. <laughs> so I think we have time for one more tune. Do you have one more up your sleeve? Yeah, we haven't heard from George, so we'll 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 do a tune from jo- for George. Um, Got was, my mind set on you. No, <laughs> that was him as a solo artist. Uh, We're and he didn't about write that Beatles. one song either. That was a cover. Um, <laughs> no, this was. I would like to pick. It's all too much, but that's kind of a long song. So what are you picking? Long, long, long off the White Album. Tell us a little bit about it. Why do you like um, it? One answer to that on most of these songs is, you know, I just love the melody, love the harmonies. But the lyric on this one is interesting, but I really like the, uh, you know, the arrangement. It's interesting thing, like, this doesn't necessarily appeal to me, but I think this song is kind of a spiritual song for... a. George Harrison. It's interesting that in the songs that from starting around this period through his solo stuff, there are a lot of these songs that sound like they could be love songs, but you almost get the impression that the you he is addressing in the song is not a woman or a person, it's God. Gotcha. Anyway. Well, here we go. Let's take a listen. Long, long, long.
Well, Jim, this has been very educational. We appreciate you coming in and talking to us about this and being our guest on our one year anniversary episode and talking about something that clearly you're super into and and know a lot about. And I learned a lot. Uh, how about well, I know we probably just scratched the surface. There's oh yeah, I'm we should sure definitely of... have you back. Yes, right. there was so much more I would like would have liked to have said, but and um, you know, but if any, I would say if anybody. Is interested? Just <clears throat> yeah, send us an email and we can connect you with Jim. Um, our email address is what do you know gtown at gmail dot com. Uh, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook at what do you know about that. And yeah, thank you so much for being with us today, Jim. Thank you for having me.